Welcome to Rockstar Violinist, the podcast from Electric Violin Shop that brings you the most innovative string players in the world. I'm Matt Bell, your host. This week, we're with my friend Joe Denison. He's an incredible singer, songwriter, violinist, artist, teacher, and mentor. We got a chance to hang out in an apartment I had in New York City back in May and recorded nearly two hours of chatting and playing. I've tried to cut as much as I could, but there's just so much great content here. We're going to run a little long. So please stick around to the end, though, because he's going to play one of his compositions live for us. This episode is brought to you by Wood Violins. Joe is a Viper player and a Wood Violins artist, as well as a faculty member at Mark Wood Rock Orchestra Camp. We'll talk about Wood Violins and how they've contributed to Joe's career a little later in the episode. All right, one note to our listeners. There are a couple of cuss words in this interview. It's just a couple. It's around 38 or so minutes. I didn't edit them out. I just wanted you to be aware in case that bothers you. Right now, you're listening to Take Your Medicine by Joe Denison and Stratospherius from their new album called Guilty of Innocence. We'll listen to a little more of this and then get right into my interview with Joe Denison, rock star violinist. The truth has been spoken in the ring of fire you stay. Curse the day that you cost us. The heart is under attack. Now you've unleashed the dragon and the ring of time. So, um, your sort of musical journey, you started playing really young, I assume, like most people do. I started when I was five, and I come from a musical family. Um, my father is a violinist, he's been playing with the Cleveland Orchestra for 38 years. Okay, so you're from Cleveland. I was born, actually, in St. Petersburg, Russia. Okay. And uh, my parents left when I was four years old, and my, uh, my dad's first job was playing the Kirov Ballet in the Marinsky Theater. Um, and uh, my mother is a concert pianist and a, a very avid, active piano teacher. She has about 40 students, um, and they're strictly classical musicians. So my father, we, we came here in 79. I was four years old, and um, we were living in a one-bedroom apartment in Queens with seven people. Uh, my uncle was, uh, my mom was pregnant with my sister. My uncle played viola and was my uncle would be practicing for auditions in the bathroom. My dad would be practicing in the kitchen. That's awesome. each other's throats. But they, it was like do or die. They have to get a job. Sure. Yeah. Long story short, my dad won the job in Cleveland. We moved there, and that's where I ended up coming of age. Um, okay. And uh, I started playing when I was five. And, you know, I, I fell in love with rock and roll and popular music probably around age eight or nine. Um, I... I didn't. I was still not. Uh, I was still an immigrant kid. I was learning English, and I felt kind of like an outcast at school. And people didn't really get classical music, and I wanted to, to be cool and fit in. And I fell in love with what was going on on MTV. And, you know, this was the early '80s. Yeah. Um, and pop culture. And uh, when I was 12, I started writing songs, and I played piano as well. Okay. Um, and I taught myself electric bass since I didn't know anyone playing bass, and I didn't even conceive that you could play violin in a band at that time. There was no one in Cleveland playing violin in a, in a rock sure. and roll band at that time. So I formed a band when I was 13. I write, wrote songs and played bass in the band. I figured four strings, just like a violin. Sure, yeah, yeah. It's just upside down. Um, so the first instrument I learned to 
improvise on was electric bass. Um, and all this time, I had a parallel life where I was just playing classical violin, going to Korean Institute of Music, going to a youth orchestra, and learning the repertoire and parallel life. And then my life playing bass and writing songs was uh, playing in, in, in my different bands. And uh, then I auditioned for my high school jazz band on bass and made a total ass of myself because I was into Billy Sheehan and was tapping, didn't know where walking bass line was. That's awesome. Uh, but then I, I met this local musician who was a Russian guitarist in Cleveland who kind of took me under his wing. Um, I failed miserably when I auditioned for his band, but he, he took me under his wing and taught me how to walk bass lines, taught me about Jocko and Miles. Yeah. And uh, changed my life. Like, he he really... And then I started... I got into guitar when I was 15. So he taught me bass and guitar. And my high school jazz band teacher, Mr. Hartz, Barry Hartz, he, every year he put on these things called the Big Band Extravaganza. And when I was a freshman in high school, we did the whole uh, Sinatra at the Sands Count Basie album. We recreated it. Oh my goodness. So I had to learn all those songs. Wow. Bass lines, all this great like Sinatra Like epic players, yeah. Yeah. And then he would do a lot of Motown stuff, all these Motown reviews, and he would be up all night transcribing all these parts. So I got to learn James Jamerson bass lines. Wow. And and he, we played Bob Mincer charts, and I'd play like Jimmy Haslip stuff, and I, I learned to play with. Him. I learned about pocket and groove, thanks to all those experiences. At the same time, I was still playing violin, playing classical music. Right. And I still go back to that because so many string players don't really get to learn how to groove and how to play in the pocket, and that's such a big part of your education, especially if you want to play for sure, jazz, funk, rock and roll. The concept of rhythm in classical music is just very different. We talk um, about that a lot. I think yeah. classical players tend to play so far ahead of the beat for whatever reason, and um, everything is kind of floating. It's, it's you know because yeah. you know it's just a different concept. And I run into that with a lot of cello players I meet because when you're a cellist, you're the bass player in the band. You're the bassist and the drummer. You know, right. and very few cellists know how to think like a bass player. I think every cellist, as part of their education, should play. You know, James Jamerson bass lines for a year. <laughs> and, uh, and just play funk and stuff like that. Um, so what happened to me um, in my high school, there was a local um, celebrity named Michael Stanley in Cleveland. I don't know if you, you've heard of him. That name is ringing a bell, but I'm not, I'm not grabbing on to why I know that name. He's kind of like Bob Seger, like the Midwest rock and roll okay. hero. He had some minor hits in the 80s. People outside of Cleveland don't really know him, but in Cleveland he packs 20,000 seat arenas. Okay. He's like a local rock star, but it, just in Northeast Ohio. That's crazy. Really weird. So he's, and he had a TV show and, you know, the radio personality on the classic rock station. So his twin daughters went to my high school. Hmm. So we would both, were both in the choir program. So he showed up uh, to see his daughters perform and he heard me playing violin and then randomly invited me to sit in with his band at, uh, uh, this place that doesn't exist called anymore called the Front Row Theater. And I had never played violin in a band before. I only played in a classical context. But I already knew the language of sure. blues and rock from playing guitar and bass. It was easy to transfer. And right around that same time, um, I got turned on to Stefan Grappelli and John Conti. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was one of the turning points for me because that show went really well and it was a, I got a great response from people. And then he invited my band at the time to open for him 
at Blossom Music Center in front of 20,000 people when oh, I was 17. Awesome. So I was playing, I was playing my songs. I, I had this um, short-lived band in high school called Three Dudes Singing, which was kind of a Crosby, Stills & Nash, and yeah. Hanson kind of. Awesome. <laughs> Three-part harmony acoustic guitars. So we got to, to open for Michael Stanley at Blossom. That's crazy. Senior year of high school, which was wild. So back to um, the, the show with when you were playing with him, how did you, did you just play an acoustic with a mic on I played it? acoustic with a, I can't remember if they mic'd it or put some kind of uh, contact pickup on it. Mm-hmm. I honestly don't remember. But it was just, it was like a handful of songs and I just was jamming with them and it just came naturally. And I thought right. to myself, I don't know anyone else doing this, at least in my scene. Right. I'm pretty good at it. This, you know, this could be a thing. So when it was time to go to college, I think secretly my, my dad wanted me to follow in his footsteps and play in an orchestra and be a classical musician and that my heart just wasn't in it, you know. So I went to, uh, as a compromise, I wanted to go to Berkeley. I ended up going to IU. Oh, yeah. Because um, they had a good classical conservatory. In Anaheim? Indiana University, yeah. and there was a jazz studies department, so I, I was a double major there in jazz and classical, and around those years in college, I, I got really into Zappa, and I, uh, the first time I heard uh, Celestial Terrestrial Commuters by Mahavishnu Orchestra, um, it was one of those moments of epiphany when I heard Jerry Goodman's solo in that song, and I'm like, that's it, that's the sound, that's yep. the sound I'm going to be chasing for the rest of my life, you know, that's how it's supposed to sound, Yeah. You know? So it was like, yeah, this is it. My whole path was set. And um, a lot of those years, we, I, I, I uh, started writing more fusion, more instrumental stuff. So this is like late 90s then? Early 90s. Mid 90s. Mid 90s. Mid okay. late 90s. Um, and I, senior year of college, I uh, recorded a CD with local Cleveland musicians. One of the things I would do while I was in college instead of getting a, a job during the summer or going to some classical music festival like Interlock, and I would hustle gigs in Cleveland. Okay. Um, I had a, a friend named Maury Epstein who was a local guitar prodigy who, who had no fear. He was like a jazz a player, but he would book like coffee shop gigs and bookshop gigs and club gigs and hire the best musicians in town, like guys that, that played with like major artists, and he would just hire them. He was like 19, 18 I'm like, how do you get these guys to play with you? It's like, I booked the gig, I negotiate the, the money. They all want to work. Yeah, I'll pay them. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, really? All right. So I can do this. So I, I, I would get like, these incredible players that would just bury me. We'd do duo and trio gigs. And instead of delivering pizza or telemarketing, that was my summer job. Yeah. I, I would just book my whole summer full of gigs. I had like four hours worth of singer-songwriter guitar acoustic things that I would do. And then I, I had my jazz gigs that I was doing. And you were playing bass or violin on those? I was on the jazz gigs. I played violin, and on the guitar, singer songwriting gigs, I'd be playing guitar and singing. You know, mixture of covers and originals. Yeah. And, and I would just hustle, and I loved it. And and I learned. I put my. I created experiences where I was the the worst guy in the band. I would purposely hire guys better than me and learn from them, and embarrass and embarrass myself a few times, but it made me get better. You know. Um, so I. Wanted, I moved to New York to do my master's at Manhattan School, and I recorded a CD that summer with local Cleveland musicians who I'd come to know over the years. And I was in New York just shopping the CD around and trying to get work. And, and you know, my goal was to go to school to make some contacts and just be a freelance musician in New York and form a band and keep developing whatever my sound was going to be. Whoa. <laughs> so that's how I sort of got started. And I met my wife at IU. Okay. In the cafeteria, in, in the dorm, you know, and she was 
we were uh, we started dating my sophomore year. We we dated for five years and got married when, when I finished Manhattan school. She ended up doing her master's in Juilliard, so we both ended up in New York, and everything kind of worked out. And she's a violinist too. She's a, 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 again a class, very classical violinist. So I'm kind of the black sheep of the family. Yeah. So what what does she think about what you do? She she respects she loves what I do. She's very supportive, and we never we're never in competition with each other because we're we inhabit very different worlds. Right. And occasionally we play together, but. Usually our schedules are such that we're very involved in our own stuff. Right. So there's not, is there any like, like sort of teaching back and forth where she's showing you maybe some stuff she's got and you're showing her some stuff? Or is that really it's more like her busting my thing? It's more like her busting my balls, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Practicing in the house out here, two floors up. Attitude! Like, <laughs> like she's like, too long. It's very self conscious. That's awesome. Um, no, it's cool. We give each other advice. She'll play for me. Um, I'll give her my opinions and, and vice versa, and you know, that's fantastic. Um, so, and you know, over the years, I've gotten involved in a lot of different things in New York, every kind of gig under the sun. And it's it's very, uh, I love what I do, and the fact that from day to day, from week to week, it's total variety. Right. So, what is it? What does a typical month look like as far as is? gigs or teaching or recording or um, I'll give you an example last week I spent the whole week subbing with the New Jersey Symphony playing Schubert and Mozart and Sibelius right um, the week before I was subbing on Miss Saigon tomorrow I'm meeting with my uh, Latin Jazz String Quartet Sweet Plantain we have some shows coming up um, that's one of my main projects is Sweet Plantain um, and today I finished mastering um, my new record with Stratospherius which we're releasing on uh, Melodic Revolution Records um, in the fall. Okay. We're going to do a few. We're going to make it exclusive in a few in like Mark Wood Camp over the summer. But it's, okay. We're finishing it up. So anyway, um, I've I've done a lot of things. I'm playing with uh, Peter Chris from Kiss in, yeah. in June. He's doing a, a big farewell concert, and I'm leading the strings for for that uh, show. So he have um, a string section with that. He has a, He's going to be kind of. Uh, a string section, a horn section. We're doing Beth and Adele's ballads and stuff like yeah. that. Um, and next in the in the fall, I'm doing uh, a string of shows with the '70s prog band Renaissance. Okay. Um, also with a small string section. And um, in August, uh, I, every year I go to the Grand Canyon Music Festival. Um, I play with a harmonica player Robert Bonfilio, who's a classical harmonica player. Um, but he also has a blues band. Okay. He runs that festival. So we go down there, play a concert, and I co-founded something called the Grand Canyon School of Rock. Where, uh, me and the guitarist, Steve Benson, we work with local high school kids who live there, put together a band, teach them how to play. In some cases, they're beginners, practically. Right. And we get three days, we put this whole show together. Oh, wow. Um, and I've also worked with uh, the Navajo and the Hopi kids in the Four Corners and the reservations there with Sweet Plantain, uh, teaching them how to write string quartets, and we, we perform their pieces. Oh, wow. Um, and that's something I'm, I do every August, every year. This is going to be like my 18th year. So, yeah, it's August. We should go to the desert where it's hot, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, it's not. It's it's 8,000 feet elevation. Okay. So at night, it gets down to the 40s there. Well, that's better. Yeah, it's yeah. actually... 
nice. It's actually not like nice. living on the sun. Yeah. If you're in Phoenix, forget it. Yeah. <laughs> Different. It's funny. You drive there from Phoenix three hours and completely you go like from like, no cactuses to evergreens. You know. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm grateful. I, I work. I love all the people I work with. I'm involved in a lot of different things. Another thing I do is I book uh, weird string groups for private events all over the city. Like, okay. Um, years ago, I got asked to put together a rock string quartet for a wedding, and it just snowballed. I, I work with like 15 different companies as a subcontractor. I've arranged over 100 pieces, and I keep cranking them out. Oh wow! Everything from Lady Gaga to Zeppelin to uh, you know whatever and um, that's a lot of fun too it's it's, uh, metrostrings.com it's metrostrings.com metrostrings so then your your arrangements I guess you you can charge for for use of those um, I I, not really I use them just for our own purposes for okay so you make your money by booking the by booking the show I hope to be able to publish them at some point by working on that um, but that's just out of necessity and it kind of it, it became um, pretty popular thing people wanted strings at their wedding doing uh, you know pop music and rock and roll and punk Earl plays with me on a bunch of those gigs okay and um, I had Martha Mook play with me on those Dave Wallace okay um, I try to hire the best people around and yeah because uh, you can either play with bad players or good players let's play with good ones the key to that whole concept is getting four players four string players who can function like a, a rock band where you could just call tunes and everyone knows how to improvise everyone knows how to jam and that was kind of my fantasy having a pool of players to choose from that can all work that way and play electric or acoustic or this or that um, so as an aside um, this may not make the tape but do you uh, do you know Rachel Grace Who's in LA? I've heard she's got a group called Saga Strings. Yeah, I've heard of them. And it's very it's it's a very similar thing. It's a string quartet that does rock and pop songs. And sometimes they play with tracks, sometimes not, sometimes it's acoustic, sometimes electric. It depends what people want. Yeah. And they yeah. fly all over the world. They did New Year's in like Qatar or something. Wow. And they, you know, it'll be like we've got this rock song and then it's time for a solo, uh you take a song. Yeah, exactly. And and that they go. It's, it's all girls. It's usually all blonde girls because because you can. Um, <laughs> but she's episode three of the podcast. Okay, cool. Um, and she's fantastic. She was from the Netherlands. She was conservatory mm-hmm. trained, and then and came from a musical family. Moved to New York and then L.A. Um, and has played with Britney Spears and um, Will I Am and Black Eyed Peas and Annie Lennox and. And all those, but the Saga Strings is her thing. Okay, yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard of them, and I know there's more and more groups popping up like that because people. The, the beautiful thing about it is that as the general public becomes aware that strings can do this, they don't just think of strings at, in a traditional classical context. They start requesting electric strings, and they start requesting any any kind of music under the sun. You know, uh, strings playing hip hop, strings playing metal. Yeah, uh, I feel like and, the public consciousness is starting to evolve and starting to go. Hey, you know, they can do stuff other than Schubert on a violin. Yeah, or fiddle music, whichever would be. Right. Um, and that's as the curse of being a redhead fiddle player. Everybody's like, oh, you, so you play Celtic music or Irish music. Right. Like, yeah, not at all. People make assumptions. I'm terrible at that stuff. But it's, um, it's the general public's consciousness and the band leaders and producers who, uh, who hire you for their band or book you for their session. If, they're, if they don't just 
you know, give you a straight chart of notes to read, but let you just go out and do your thing and trust you to do that. You know, and, and all of this stuff creates work for, for people like us. Right. And uh, the work's out there and it's growing, you know. And I think there's a new generation of people coming up that, that have the, that, those skill sets, you know. Um, a, a, another thing I, I did last year was a bucket list thing for me. I, I got to write and premiere an electric violin concerto. Something mm. I've always wanted to do. And yeah, was, so tell us about that. Um, I When I was... I do these educational residencies... And actually, this came through Christian House. He has a friend named Douglas Drostate, who's a conductor, and he was teaching at Oklahoma State. Um, and he invited me to be a guest artist there. And then he got the job as a music director of the Muncie Symphony Orchestra in Indiana. Mm-hmm. So he invited me to perform with them, and I thought this is a great excuse to write an electric violin concerto. I'm yeah. not going to go there and play Brahms. You know, yeah, anyone can do that. Stuff. So, um, so I wrote it. It's a four movement piece. And uh, we pr- premiered it in September of last year, and I'm um, working on getting it out there. I'm doing a piano reduction version at the Grand Canyon this year. Okay. And um, hoping to get it performed. <laughs> Right, so we just heard Joe talk about his electric violin concerto. Here are some clips from that concerto from when he performed it with the Muncie Symphony Orchestra. You can see video of this on his YouTube channel. Just look up Joe Denizon on YouTube. So you talk about playing electric, and I see you've got your seven strings sitting here. Um, when did you sort of make the leap from acoustic violin to electric, and you know, how did, how that whole process go down? The second year in college, when I after I got into Jerry Goodman and Sugarcane Harris and, and John Luke, I'm like, I got to get an electric violin. Yeah. And I looked at Barkus Berry and Vector and Ithaca, and I wasn't aware of Mark Wood yet at the time. I ended up buying a Jensen, six-string yeah. Jensen. That was my first electric violin. Violent. And and I, I Barbera pickup. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have it. It's very beat up. A lot of wear and tear. Um, and I love it. It's a great instrument. I still take it on the road with me when I don't have a lot of baggage. You could just stick it. It's, right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so it's tiny. It's nothing. There's yeah, nothing to it's it. great. Um, and then I bought uh, this Viper in 2003. Okay. And, and um, a funny story. So I... There was a waiting list, and Mark calls me. Six months I was waiting for them to build the Viper. He said, your Viper's ready. Come pick it up. So I go pick up the Viper, then I go straight to a rehearsal. I play with the band. And I get to the rehearsal studio. This was August 14, 2003. Put my bow on the string. The second I hit the string, blackout. Oh. That was the, the whole eastern seaboard. 
Oh my goodness. You know that historic black Yeah. Room? That's yeah. why you knew the day. It was, yeah. It was, I, I did it. Sorry. Sorry, sorry everybody. It was, it was the, the, it was the Viper. The unrealistic <laughs> power coming out of that Viper. I don't so, know what note that was, but I don't ever play that again. But it was the timing of it was perfect. It was like, That's awesome. Yeah, I do remember so, seeing that, and now I'm glad I know why that happened. I'm to blame. Can I say? So this is you bought a seven string, yeah, right off the bat. Yeah, absolutely. Because I've been playing with a six string for about, like six years by that time, and I knew the seven strings existed. And I don't have to play hard rock and metal, yeah, power chords and cello lines, and um, I love it. I mean. It's sometimes when I go back to playing acoustic, I search for the low strings, like having a phantom limb. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've got all these. I play five strings, so I've got all these five string licks. Yeah. And if I'm playing a four, I've got to start thinking as I'm coming down from the D to the G. I've got to start thinking about turning that thing early. Yeah. And and like, oh gosh, what? I'm missing a string. So it takes getting used to. It. And when I, the concerto I wrote was really for that instrument. There's a lot of. It's in three clefs. Okay. Uh, bass, alto, and treble. And when I, um, I just rewrote it for five string because I have a friend who who has a five string violin who's trying to perform it, and it was tough letting go of those low parts and trying to come up yeah. with ways, you know, because a lot of them are very crucial <laughs> to the music. Um, so it's not possible, I guess. See, with an electric, you sort of feel like if he had an octave pedal, he was judicious with his use of his octave pedal. He could. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. It's not the same, and it's it's, not. it's extra extra work. You know? It is. Um, yeah, so you could octave displace and, and do things. Um, so I, I started Stratospherius in two thousand one. That was sort of I always I was trying to merge my love of jazz and violin fusion music with my love of songwriting and, and rock and roll and groups like Van Halen and Led Zeppelin and you know Rush. Um, and I love to sing, and I've been doing it for a while. So I did an instrumental record when I got out of school. And then I just kept searching and gradually started writing more and more vocal songs and incorporating the violin. And I thought, there's all these great instrumentalists throughout history. Like, when you think of guitarists, particularly like Jimi Hendrix or Stevie Ray Vaughan or Eric Clapton, they're primarily known as guitar virtuoso guitar players, but they all had both sang on their albums. For sure, you know? and were all great singers. Well, good singers, yeah. And I thought that I, it would be cool. I don't know anyone who really does that with a violin. I thought it would be cool to kind of strive for that. And that's the kind of music I love to play. It kind of incorporates all my interests. Right. So well, and then the Viper makes that so much easier because your yeah. head is free and your jaw is free. Absolutely. It's, I, it's, a, it's a blessing for people who like to sing and play. Yeah, I mean, I, I see a lot of Nashville cats, um, and I could name some names, but it's but you see a lot of a lot of them that are playing and singing, but they've got to hold the violin weird to do it, and I feel yeah. like you don't have full access to your playing ability that way, or full access to your voice. It's like I'm trying to do both, and I end up not being able to do either one the way I want to. When I play acoustic, on acoustic gigs and try to sing, it's it's harder. You know, it is. I, I do that a lot. Um, and I first started singing with the Jensen, okay, which which wasn't wasn't easy because you know it's not it doesn't have the hardest system, right? And it's fretless. And, and so, it's funny to me that Mark is the one who came up with this thing, and he doesn't sing. Yeah, it's interesting because to me, because I'm a singer too, and that was that was the biggest selling point to me 
on the Viper is that I could sing and play at the same time. I'm thinking, well, surely this Mark Wood guy must sing. That's why he came up with this. He doesn't sing. That's at all. interesting. Yeah. In fact, it's hard to even get him to do background vocals. We were doing a, a Pink Floyd song. I was singing with his orchestra, Mark Wood Rock Orchestra Camp, and his wife was busting his chops. He, he was shy by doing the backup vocals. Yeah. Like, come on, Mark. You're always telling well, me. Well, you know, you're married to Laura <laughs> Kay. I can see why. That's true. You don't really want to sing much. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, you're going to get yelled at. So, yeah. And by the way, that camp is so incredible. Uh, if any of your listeners, I can't recommend it enough. It's just such a beautiful atmosphere and it's very encouraging. There's a familial atmosphere among the faculty and uh, it really feels like a community. It's one of the few camps I know where people really stay in touch throughout the year. And um, just all they do is think all year about the next camp. Yeah, Mark talking about a lot. Mark was episode one of our podcast, and he talked about his camp a lot and his vision for sort of bringing the next generation into this. is is excited about like cannot wait to see what these kids come up with to stack on top of sort of the ground that's been broken by some of us old guys. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and he's just he's just so passionate about that. Um, I had dinner with him last night, so I mean that's half of what he talked about was the rock camp, and uh, I can't wait to come out. I'm coming out in you'll, July. You'll have a great time. Um, what I was going to say um, now it's going to be the camps. The camps eight year in my seventh. Okay. So now we're starting to see kids that came there when they were 12, 13, 14 who were in college and, and already are rocking out, playing with bands, writing their own stuff, developing their own sound. It sort of came up through the camp. It's, it's fun to see that. Okay, this makes a perfect segue into our talk about Wood Violins, our sponsor. Mark Wood was episode one of this podcast. Not only is he an incredible artist himself, which has inspired a lot of us, he invented the instrument that makes it possible for many of us to do what we do. The Wood Violins Viper is a revolutionary self-supporting instrument that allows you to play the violin without having to hold it with your chin on your shoulder. For players who sing like Joe, it's an invaluable tool. They are available in four, five, six, and even seven-string versions like Joe's. It's tuned in fifths, just like your acoustic violin, from high to low, E, A, D, G. Then you add a low C, then a low F, and finally a low B-flat string, giving you a low note that's a whole step below the bottom note of a cello. Check out woodviolins.com for more info about Vipers and their other instruments, as well as artist profiles such as Joe Denison and our next episode, Val Vagoda, also Wood Violins artist. Right now, you're listening to a live version of Joe's take on the theme from The Simpsons. say like you know violin's been around for 500 years or so right and there's still so much room for trailblazing and doing something new with it well it's you know it's a lot like guitar nobody ever questions that 
like you could get this revolutionary new thought on a guitar, which is an instrument that's not quite as old as the violin, but it's the same concept. You know, guitars have been around forever, and different. And all, I mean, lutes and mandolins and yeah, that's true. You know, all the, all the but you know, nobody play. thinks twice about a young kid guitar player coming up with a whole new way to play this thing and a whole new way to look at it. You go, oh yeah, well of course. I never trust anyone that says it's all been done. Right. They've been say, they were saying that throughout history. <laughs> yeah, who's the guy that it said like around 1900 that he figured we might as well just close the patent office because everything that could possibly right. invented already had been right. And we hadn't even invented flight yet, you know. That's funny. And it's funny because you know we're we're working with and this is always a fascinating thing to me. We're working with the same 12 notes, you know, in the Western scale that we've been working with for. Thousands God, of years. Yeah, thousands oh. of years, and we're continually coming up with something new. And, and I always feel like I've just I've got young kids like you, and it, and I'm turning my kids on to. Thanks the for calling me a young kid. Yeah, yeah. I'm only one year younger than you, man. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, that's, that's right. It's just made my day. Um, the, I'm turning my kids on to the Beatles right now, um, and 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 it's like the most revolutionary stuff they did. If you think about it, and you write it out on staff paper. I want to hold your hand. It's super simple. You know, musically, there's nothing complex about that. But it's it was fresh and it was new. And it's like, gosh, how do you take these same 12 notes that, that Mozart had? And I'm going to come up with a way to rearrange these in a way that nobody's ever done before. Well, all, I, I thought about it. And what all my favorite kind of music has in common is that there's layers. Mm. If you take the Beatles, all their songs, any... Any schmo on the street can sing one of their songs and sing along, but if you go and analyze, there's layers of complexity that someone who's a study musician can appreciate. And I could say that about Stevie Wonder, I could say that about Sting and Steely Dan and any band that starts with an S pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, but you know what I mean, it's that that's the hardest kind of music to write. It's not like complex for complexity's sake. Right. Um, that's catchy and has a beautiful melody but has a lot of cool, intricate stuff going on, should you choose to listen for it. Right. You, know? you can appreciate it on a surface, animalistic, primal level, you can appreciate it on an intellectual level. It's hard to write that kind of stuff. That's yeah. what Beethoven did, you know? Yeah, it's it what Mozart did. So that's what, that's what I try to do. <laughs> So here's a clip of some of Joe's earlier work. This tune is called Chunga Changa and is from his 2002 release called The Adventures of Stratospherius. So the album you just, just maybe finished tonight, right? Not going to jinx this. Yeah. Um, so maybe talk about that a little bit, and then by the time this episode comes out, hopefully I'll be able to get some samples from you. Totally. And we'll be able to fly them in in the episode. 
So maybe if you want to pick a tune that you're sort of thinking is a sort of a seminal piece there and you want us to play it in the episode and maybe talk about that a little bit, yeah. give us a preview and then let us listen and then tell us about it on the backside. Um, well, I'll, I'll say off the bat, this is the most rocking album we've ever done. Um, Stratospherius is a four-piece band. I've had it for many years in different shapes and forms. It's bass, drums, guitar, um, electric violin, and vocals. Um, this is probably the most straight-up rock and roll album. In the past, I've kind of delved a little bit in, in jazz and, and some acoustic stuff, but this, is, this one just punches you in the face from the get-go. And um, the, the title of the album is Guilty of Innocence. Mm. And the artwork, I've had my son, Max, draw this actually when a few years ago he, he drew the name of the band and, uh, and the title that I had floating around I've, had, I've been working on this for three years and he, he did like a he, he writes better now yeah. that's not the point right, right he did exactly. like a backwards F it looks like a, a kid's the cover looks like a kid's drawing right and then I, he had a sculpture of a dragon coming out of an egg and I, I've incorporated that into the cover and it's um, so a, a few of the songs are political uh, a few of the songs are one of the songs the title track was inspired by a stint I did in jury duty uh, it's called Guilty of Innocence and it's sort of about uh, I guess the theme is that we're all uh, we all like to build people up and tear them down um, not look in the mirror and see our flaws or project our flaws and other people you know sure There's a song called Behind the Curtain, which um, sort of talks about how people can be publicly shamed and wear kind of a, a, a symbolic scarlet letter, uh, people in, in the public eye. I think of like characters like Anthony Weiner and, mm-hmm. and I don't know, you pick, there's like, there's that, many characters yeah, like for that. Sure. But just talking about how fucked up our society is and um, I mean, those guys are fucked up too in their own way. But uh, there's a line about we like glass houses. We like to feel like we're superior, and not us. Exactly. We like to feel like we're superior, like we can do no wrong. You know, there's that kind of element to it. cover of uh, Hysteria by the band Muse, mm. which is one of my favorite Love bands Muse. right now. Yeah. And I completely reimagined that song. I want, that song has spoken to me for many years, and I thought if I'm going to do that song, I can't do it like Muse, because they do it so perfectly. i got to completely right. mash it up. So I think uh, you'll be pleasantly surprised. I'm very proud of, of the way it came out. Awesome. Um,
Um, uh, I do, actually, the cadenza for my violin concerto is a standalone solo piece. Um, I've never had, and I, I've put out a bunch of records, I've never had a solo violin piece on any of my records, and I wanted to kind of tip my hat to Eddie Van Halen's eruption and have something going on like that. Yeah. With That starts out kind of soft and ethereal and um, then builds to this crazy, distorted, psychedelic, you know, smorgasbord. Yeah, so, so then it's just one pass, one violin. It's it's actually um, a bunch of different sounds I was experimenting with. Um, different, but it's all all the sounds produced by the Viper. Okay, through different effects and patches. It, it, it's called Dream Diary Cadenza um, because the concerto is called Dream Diary, so I took it okay. out of the concerto. I've been performing it as a standalone piece. Okay. with Sweet Plantain. I was halfway through the tour in Sweden, I think we were, and I was up all night and I couldn't sleep. And I, this song just poured out of me and it's about uh, missing my kids, basically being on here. It's called Parallel Reality. That's another song. On any given night they smile Forget the worries for a while I could get lost in this abyss Spiraling for a million miles I'll sign my name and hit the street Another bar I drag my feet This ancient castle's crowd my view And all I can do is think of you I may have clouds beneath my knees But I descend to stormy seas A fleeting kiss is all this is You know, it's it's like an identity thing. It's you know, music playing music isn't something I do. It's something that I am. Yeah, I didn't choose it. It chose me. Yeah, it's like it, that. And I would it's hard for people to really understand that. We say you know, because we all look like self obsessed schmucks sometimes <laughs> to the outside world. Well, you know, maybe we are a little bit. <laughs> that has to be there to some degree, I guess. Right. Yeah. But it's I would actually discourage people from going into doing this for a living. And if I'm able to discourage you from that, then you weren't cut out for this. I had this crazy idea for an analogy. Um, you ever see the movie Quills uh-huh. with uh, Jeffrey Rush? Jeffrey Rush. Mm-hmm. It's about the Marquis de Chade. Okay. 
do you know the most know that, he wrote yeah. all these erotic books I think in the God, what century was it the 16th century it was a while back and he had the Catholic Church after him they arrested him took away his his quills and his papers and everything so they they open up there's a scene where they open up his cell and he, he wrote stories in his own feces all over the wall because he had to because he's an artist he, he was just, he had to do it that's the level of commitment you have to have to be a musician. Anything less than that, don't do it. <laughs> right. And that's my thing. If I can talk you out of this, then th- then this wasn't for you. Because believe me, a lot of people are going to try to talk you out of this. And and if, if me, some weird guy from the violin shop, if I can talk you out of this, then... Well, see, that doesn't mean you don't play music. Things. Do it, but, you know... Find a way to make money. <laughs> but, if, but if I tell you, you know, this is a hard way to make a living. It may not be for you. If you go, oh, okay, you're right, that you weren't going to make it anyway. And if you look at me and go, dude, I don't care what you say. I have to do this. Yeah. Then you go, all right, Absolutely. well, then it's right for you. It's fine. We, you're just as crazy. We, we want to teach our kids to play. That's like a requirement in our house. But we're very skeptical, especially my wife, who's got the steady gig. They're really, you know, about than being musicians. But she knows how hard those gigs are to come by. She knows how hard it is to come by. And I, from my end, I, I mean, it's all possible, but you got to think entrepreneurially. you got to be able to do everything. you got to hustle. And if you don't have that in you, right. I just expect things to be handed to you. You're not going to make it. it. You know, and to what extent do you feel like you're auditioning for your job every day? That all you the fucking there? time. Yeah. It keeps me on my toes. I don't get complacent. That's for, for damn sure. You know? Um, but that's... It is what it is. Yeah. And and I just re- there was an article, and here's the other thing, um, the wake up call. Like I'm a big fan of bands like King's X and Spock's Beard. I'm a big prop rock yeah. guy. And those guys are rock stars in my eyes. I'm listening to Spock's Beard, and then I find out their lead singer washes windows on, on every Monday. Oh. You know, they're not touring. I mean, they are, but they're not making a living. They're all doing day jobs. The, the guys, you know, lead singer is an IT guy, and he washes windows once a week. Wow. And, and King's X, you know, a few years back, Doug Pinnock, the lead singer, they were signed to Atlantic in the early 90s. Yeah. The lead singer, bass player, he was asking for donations for hip surgery because he didn't have health insurance. You My know? buddy Keith Slack is a drummer, just toured with Doug Pinnock for a while. Uh-huh. And, uh, and Keith has got this degenerative muscle condition. And um, same kind of deal. It's like he, he had to open a studio in Texas in order to pay his bills because, you know, even though these guys were huge stars in their field, in the, the eyes of... Perception is a funny thing. Yeah, the millions of dollars aren't there like they are for, for Bruno Mars. I, I read that in order... For, yeah, Bruno Mars is point zero 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 one percent of the musical population. The rest of us are slugging it out in orchestra yeah. pits and stuff. But the thing is, like, I read an article, like, in order for an artist to make as much as... On Spotify, as a Spotify employee, they have to have like 300,000 streams of a song or something. Because a Spotify employee makes 160 grand a year. Wow. And the artists that provide the music get paid right. peanuts. You know, Taylor Swift, Swift just made a big stink out of that, right? Was she the one that... Yeah, she, she got off Spotify and Coldplay and a few other artists did that. I had a lot more respect for her after that because... I, I do. The interviewer, she said, you know, I don't need the money. I don't care about this, but there's a lot of people out there who do, and yeah. they, but they don't have the voice that I do. So I must, I must put Good my foot her. down. I must stick up for them. My respect for her is growing as she gets older. I liked her last album. Um, I don't know how much of it she actually wrote, but I think yeah. she wrote it all. I mean, it's, it, the songs are good. <laughs> um, when she first came out, I'm like, there's, I know many, many girls as 
talented or more than, than her. Why is everyone making a big fuss about her? You know, um, but you know she does her thing and, and she's yeah. Did you hear the Ryan Adams cover version? I've heard bits and pieces. It's really cool. It's really she cool. likes it. Well, she ought yeah. to. It's good. Um, um, some of it, some of his versions, I liked hers better, and some of them I liked his better. But they were all so. Different. I gotta go go into it, listen to it in a little more detail. But it's it's great that he did it. I think it's really cool. And and female songs from a female perspective, change having a guy do them. That's great. Very much. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say. So that all being said, you know, going back to the whole music business thing, you can be dark about it, but I, I think about my life and people like Earl and all of us that are in this crazy business. I like the fact that I get to go play in an orchestra for a week or go in a Broadway pit or even go, I love playing weddings. I have a good time. I get to stand there with my electric violin for an hour and, and jam out on loop pedals and, and yeah. stuff. I like playing with a good um, top 40 band and you, you know that if the players are good it doesn't matter what you're playing you can have a great time Absolutely. And, and those gigs pay better than most orchestra teaching gigs sometimes um, and all of it's fun I don't mind doing all, all of this stuff that's sort of my day job at night you know right um, I just did I do a lot of jingles I just did three jingles for Marriott tomorrow morning I'm doing a jingle for uh, Samsung and it's a reworking of Drops of Jupiter with a bluegrass kind of vibe oh wow and they want fiddle and mandolin you know oh Every day I'm doing something different and it's fun. So, yeah. And I get to do my original project. That's important because I know guys that don't have any original thing going on. They just do these gigs, uh, orchestra pit or wedding gigs or whatever. And no, you, I, for me, I have to have an outlet to be creative. I have to have my music, you know, where I'll go crazy. But everyone's different, right? You know? Um, and I found that the stuff I write with Stratospherius. Um, here's the other thing. I, I, I know guys that buy their, who are traditional string players, they'll buy a Viper and they'll sit on it for a few years and be in their closet and then they'll get rid of it. Yeah. Talk to them a few years and I got rid of it. I didn't know what to do with it. I'm like, well, if you sit around and wait for someone to, to hire you as a Viper player, it's not going to happen. you got to create your own gigs on the Viper. Yeah. Because no one even considers, or at least a few years ago, they didn't consider it. Right. Uh, well, I think I'll. I need a Viper player for my band. No one thinks of that. <laughs> yeah, so, I see in New know. York, there's a bunch of Viper players, but I still think it's not like your average person on the street would recognize one. Right. And I all constantly. What is that thing? What is that? All the time, I have to constantly educate people. But like, I'm thinking, okay, the wedding gigs I've been doing. I um, I do these Hasidic Orthodox Jewish wedding gigs where they love it when I show up and freak out on the. They just let me do my thing. No one asks me to bring the big pedal board to those gigs. I purposely bring it just to showcase what it can do. And sure. for my own curiosity and uh, <laughs> and battle against boredom, I like to fuck around and yeah. come up with sounds and just experiment. Well, they're, they're paying you to do, oh, whatever. Right. Okay. If you have a platform to do that, or you've got to create a platform, that's how you, that's how it gets done. Yeah. That's how, why I created Stratosphere, so I have a platform to explore new territory and test the limits of this instrument and what I can do and you know it's been exponentially rewarding yeah. because a lot of that stuff has fed into what I do at Mark's Camp what I do when I go out to schools and teach and things I've done with like string orchestras and the concerto and because a lot of the ideas I had from writing for that band kind of filtered into other stuff so you know it's uh I think it's a muscle, right? And, and you know, like exercising 
the, the creative muscle, the writing muscle. For sure. You know, the more you do it, the better you're going to get. You're so toned into the real fears. All those lost years, now I see. You don't care nothing about me. All right, we actually got interrupted mid-thought in the interview at this point when someone walked in, but, you know, it's cool. We'll take this opportunity to share something else from the new album. This is Affluenza. Now, I know this podcast is going long, but please hang in there. We're going to chat for a few more minutes, and then he's going to play. This is totally worth the wait. No, I see. You don't care enough about me. So, yeah, you talk about exercising that creative muscle, and the more you do it, the better you get at it. Absolutely. I think the, what I find with a lot of um, strength, here's, the, here's the, the, the core of it. If you're a kid, let's say you're seven years old and you get your first guitar, what are you going to do with the guitar? You're going to sit down and try to figure out your favorite Taylor Swift song or, or Ed Sheeran or whatever the hell is on the or Metallica. Right. You're going to be jamming with your favorite songs and just figure out what the hell is that. And, and then you'll, at some point you'll start writing your own songs because it just lends itself to that. Right. You know? If you're a kid and you, and you get a violin, first of all, just to make a sound on that violin takes at least a year of practicing. Yeah, because it sounds like someone's strangling sound. a cat. Yeah, there's, sure. there's no instant gratification. Number two, you'll go to uh, your teacher and they'll give you a strict practice regimen. You do your scales, you do your ATs, you do your Suzuki, you, know, you go through this piece, then you go to that piece, then you go to the next level. Um, you don't question anything. You do it this way. Where is the time in, in that practice period to jam with your favorite, you know, Metallica song or whatever? There, that time is not. That's discouraged, even. Right. So, that's that's like uh, the seed that's planted from day one. And then if if you go through that kind of an education for 15 years, why why are we surprised that string players are afraid? Up to improvise or afraid to play something that's not on the page or afraid to express themselves or be creative because they're constantly told that what they're doing is wrong. Right. So there's a certain degree of self-acceptance. And I think when I do the improv workshops, even for an hour, if I go into a school or, or a professional situation and do a few little drills with people and just kind of open that door, there's a lot of... It's kind of let, let, you know letting the floodgates out. It's... Uh, it's therapeutic, and there's a certain degree of self-acceptance that people have to um, go through. You know, and um, I know it sounds hokey, but I think um, like seeing it at these camps, it's opened up people's minds and changed their lives. Um, learning to exercise that part of your brain and develop it. You know, and I think every musician, no matter what instrument you play, has to develop that part of their brain from day one. I think the educational system has got to change. I think and, it is too. And I think in the string world, even though the electric violin shop exists and Mark Wood's camp and Julie Lieberman's camp and Berkeley and Mark O'Connor, Chris House, we still got a long way to go before, you know, the, and that, this is just in the States. If you go, if you go to Europe, if you go to Japan or China, they're still at ground zero as far as the string, you know, alternative string education. And there are so many string players there for us to tap into, I think. Perhaps thousands, millions, yeah. you know. So we we got a long way to go. 
So you talked about pedal boards and effects and all that, and we've got a little setup here on the floor. Why don't you talk about some of your gear, and then, uh, and then we're going to have some fun, man. You're gonna all right. I have no idea what I'm going to do, and that's the beauty of it. Yeah. <laughs> Just whatever comes um, out. So um, this is my stripped-down setup because this is a five-floor walk-up. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to schlep. I have this ginormous pedal board with tons of stuff on it that I love to show off. And I left my roadie back in North Carolina. Yeah, you should next time bring your roadie. Yeah, me too. So, if I screw this up, we'll have to re refill it. But this is um, my portable rig. Uh, this is a TC Electronics Nova. And it's a multi effects processor. And what I like about it, it functions like a bunch of mini pedal boards. You can. Within each patch, there's eight sounds. Um, this is like a chorus. Uh, this is a pitch control, so you could do whammies and, and harmonies, and things like that. This is a lay pedal, reverb, it's a compression, a boost, a drive. So it's your basic food groups, so to speak. Right. And you can each patch you could set uh, for a different song or a different. Um, and it's got tap tempo for for delay. Um, so I take this when I when I fly out, and I don't want to schlep my whole pedal board. Right. But it does. It's limited compared to what my pedal board can do. Um, and this is just a wah pedal. Um, and here I have just a very basic loop pedal, uh, Boss RC3. I'm not a virtuoso looper like certain people we both know. But yeah, I, I dabble in it. And again, out of necessity, I used to not play a lot of solo days. I always played with a band. But in recent years, when I go out to schools and do residencies, when I teach my classes, um, I'm by my lonesome, and I have to develop a repertoire of loop stuff. So everybody should have a loop pedal because it's a great practice tool. It is. It's way better than, than playing with tracks. I hate playing with tracks um, because you, you have to think about the whole song, think about the rhythm, the bass line, the harmony, the melody, and there's no room for mistake. If you play a mistake, it's played back right. at you over and over and over and over again. So it's uh, it's great to be able to loop. And um, so let's see. I've never tried this as a solo piece before. I'm going to do an excerpt of uh, Stratospheria's song called The Prism. Wish me luck. Here we go.
I forgot. I used to live in an apartment in New York. Yeah, well, just, we probably, you probably usually have, what, about 10 minutes before somebody starts freaking out? Yeah. It would have been made great uh, footage if someone did knock down the door. Exactly. You answer them with Cheers. the camera. Yeah. Answer them with the camera and go, yo, we got a big star up here. You're going to be a big star now. Celebrity. So that's one that, that you wrote all that. And, uh, that's the closing song on our last... Is this still rolling? Yeah, I, I got tape from Oh, yeah. This is the closing song on our last album. We did it as a band, and there's words to it. I just did it instrumentally. It's, uh, seeing things that... Uh, seeing things through the wrong prism And your prism is just a prism And if you don't adjust the mirror You're heading for So we took the live in Matt's apartment version and swam right into the studio version of Prism. This is on the new record as well. I actually got to play this with Joe at the Mark Wood Rock Orchestra Camp, and I dug the song before, but getting the sheet music and having to work through it myself really helped me understand what an amazing artist and songwriter Joe Denison is. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Rockstar Violinist. Thanks to Wood Violins for their sponsorship and Electric Violin Shop for their support. Please check out Joe's website at joedenison.com, woodviolins at woodviolins.com, and Electric Violin Shop at electricviolinshop.com. We'll see you guys in two weeks for an interview with Val Vagoda, rock star violinist. Still drowning in sorrow.